Welcome to a history of the Space Race podcast, episode 29, Apollo Spacecraft Development. For this episode, I'm going to talk about the research and design of the Apollo spacecraft. Specifically, I'm going to talk about the development of the Lunar Excursion Module and the Command Module. The research and design of these two Apollo spacecraft have been going on since 1961, but I've decided to wait until now, when our story has gotten to 1964, to talk about them, because in 1964 is when the big picture aspects of the design for both spacecraft become settled, and the spacecraft enter the manufacturing process. Research and design started on the command module first, but I'm going to go in reverse in terms of a timeline by starting with the Lunar Excursion Module. I'm doing this because, as you will soon hear, the design for the Command Module kept changing quite dramatically until NASA finally decided on Lunar Orbital Rendezvous, or LOR, as the mode for getting to the Moon, and the design for a Lunar Excursion Module began in earnest. NASA began studying designs for a lunar lander as early as late 1961, well before NASA decided on Lunar Orbital Rendezvous. This early work, however, was limited to just studies. Mostly, these studies were by the researchers in Langley, Virginia, who were studying lunar lander designs as part of their advocacy in favor of Lunar Orbital Rendezvous. In early 1962, as NASA began to more seriously consider LOR, the thinking for a lunar lander moved beyond pure study. The engineers at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston began drawing up preliminary designs for a lunar excursion module. But these designs were very preliminary. The first draft of the design was little more than the Apollo Command Module, turned upside down with an engine attached, and some windows added at the bottom to help with the landing. During the very early design phase, NASA headquarters also asked that Houston design the lunar excursion module with the capability for automated landings on the moon. Remember that back in episode 16 when I discussed the modes for getting to the moon, one mode considered was Lunar Surface Rendezvous. This was where an unmanned mission would land supplies in a return vehicle on the moon ahead of the arrival of a manned mission. Apparently, someone in NASA headquarters wanted to keep a version of this alive by creating the ability to ferry payloads to the lunar surface without astronauts. The Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, however, opposed the idea of an automated lunar lander. The engineers in Houston believed that an automated lander would be unreliable, and the design would be compromised by attempting to install dual systems, one for automated landing and one for manual, on the lunar lander. 
Apparently, NASA headquarters backed down because Houston warned that the contract for the lunar lander needed to be awarded quickly. The compromise was that the contractor would just examine the potential benefits and drawbacks of a manned and an automated landing system. But then there was another problem with awarding the contract to start building the lunar lander. As you may recall from episode 16, by July 1962, NASA was firmly committed to lunar orbital rendezvous, which obviously necessitated the design of a lunar lander. But the President's Science Advisory Committee, led by Jerome Wisner, challenged the selection of LOR. Wisner tried to stop NASA from awarding a contract for the lander, knowing that once funds were committed, NASA would be committed to the LOR decision. NASA ended up having to publicly defend its decision to select LOR, which delayed the announcement of a contract for the lunar lander until November 1962. In November 1962, NASA announced that the contract to build the lunar excursion module would go to Grumman Aircraft Engineering, located on Long Island in Bethpage, New York. The award of the contract to Grumman was rather fortuitous. Up to now, Grumman had attempted to bid on virtually every major manned spaceflight project with NASA and had lost every single time. In general, the big winner of the contracts was North American Aviation, which was already working on the Apollo Command Module, among other things. In fact, North American had opposed LOR because it would mean that its command module would not land on the moon. But once NASA decided on LOR, North American tried to get the contract for the lunar lander too. In fact, North American tried to convince NASA to circumvent the bidding process and sole source the contract to North American based on the company's unique experience. But NASA, concerned about North American's workload, rejected this suggestion. In fact, NASA basically told North American not to build on the lunar contract at all because there was just too much on North American's plate. Meanwhile, Grumman had been losing every contract bid. And after losing the bid on the Apollo Command Module, Grumman continued to research lunar landing modes on its own. And as it so happened, Grumman focused on lunar orbital rendezvous as the best option for landing on the moon and had begun drawing up plans for developing simulators based on an LOR approach. So when the opportunity came to bid on the contract for the lunar excursion module, Grumman was uniquely well positioned to win. The final contract signed in March of 1963 was for $387 million to build the lunar lander. The lunar excursion module was the very last major system of Apollo to begin development, it now being two and a half years since President Kennedy's State of the Union address. Fears arose that development of the lunar lander was starting so late 
that this would become the new pacing item that determined the timing of the lunar landing. Grumman, however, started working immediately, even before the final contract was signed. The lunar excursion module that Grumman had in mind would have two basic parts, a descent stage and an ascent stage. I'll go through some of the major design decisions for each of these parts, starting with the descent stage. The descent stage of the lunar excursion module was the part that would actually perform the landing on the moon. Once the lunar surface mission was complete, the ascent stage would leave the descent stage behind. Effectively, the descent stage was to act as a launch pad for the ascent stage once the lunar landing was successful. To create what was effectively a lander and a launch pad, there were two major engineering issues that had to be tackled. The first was creating a throttleable engine, and the second was designing landing gear that could hold the entire lunar excursion module, the ascent stage and descent stage, on the lunar surface. Engineering a throttleable rocket engine for the lunar lander was one of the biggest engineering challenges for the Apollo spacecraft in general. A throttleable engine is one that can have its thrust varied. This was critical to enable a soft landing on the moon. If the rocket's engines could not be varied, a soft landing would have been virtually impossible. Imagine, for example, trying to park a car in a driveway if the car had only an on-off switch that made it go 60 miles an hour or stop. When Grumman started work on the lunar lander, however, very little research had been done on how a throttleable rocket engine could even be made. NASA had two ideas. One way to make a rocket engine throttleable was to inject helium into the propellants. This approach would result in less efficient burning of the fuel and thus reduced thrust while also making the engineering of the fuel control aspect of the rocket engine easier, since the same flow rate for the fuel could be maintained throughout the operation of the engine. Another approach was to incorporate flow control valves in a variable area injector to regulate pressure, flow rate, and the pattern of the fuel mixture injected into the combustion chamber. In other words, unlike the first approach, which sought to maintain the same pressure in the fuel lines by replacing part of the fuel with helium, in this second approach, a valve would actually just reduce the flow of propellants running through the fuel lines. To maintain the same amount of pressure as the propellants were injected into the combustion chamber, however, the variable area injector would change to alter the area in which the propellants were sprayed. So to try and analogize this to something in layman's terms, if you're taking a shower, this is sort of like turning down the amount of water going to the shower head, but then changing the setting on the shower head to one with fewer holes to try and maintain the pressure. Because virtually no research had been done on development of a throttleable engine, 
NASA told Grumman to develop the engines based on both approaches at the same time. The thought was that as development proceeded, one method should become obviously better than the other. But in fact, both systems proved equally effective all the way through development to the end of 1964. As a result, by January 1965, NASA told Grumman to just go with the latter option. That is, the one with the flow control valves and a variable area injector to regulate flow rate and pressure. NASA made its decision based on management reasons, not engineering ones. The first method involving helium had been developed by the subcontractor Rocketdyne, while the second method with the flow control valves had been developed by the subcontractor Space Technology Laboratories. Because Rocketdyne had plenty of other contracts, NASA decided to go with the method developed by Space Technology Laboratories to free up Rocketdyne's resources. Indeed, in 1964, Charles Matthews, the guy heading up the Gemini program, was unhappy with Rocketdyne's performance. He was waiting on Rocketdyne to provide him with the much-needed attitude and maneuvering thrusters for Gemini, and didn't want Rocketdyne to get any more NASA contracts until Rocketdyne delivered. But more about that problem next time. The second major engineering decision on the descent stage was the landing gear. One of the concerns that Grumman had early in the design process for the entire lunar excursion module was the possibility that the rocket engine in the ascent stage could cause the descent stage to tip over during liftoff from the lunar surface. This tipping action could damage the ascent stage during liftoff. The landing gear would have to be made stable enough to prevent this. Complicating matters was the lack of information about the lunar surface. As I said in the episodes covering the Ranger program, NASA had virtually no information about what the lunar surface was like. In 1963, there were studies underway to attempt to simulate what the lunar surface would be like. But NASA could not afford to wait for the results of those studies before proceeding with the engineering. There was simply not enough time. So Grumman started designing the landing gear without any information about the lunar surface. Initially, Grumman started with a design for the descent stage that had five legs for landing. Early in the design process, however, Grumman cut this down to four legs, but expanded the size of the landing foot pads, which had a saucer-like shape, from 22 centimeters to 91 centimeters, or about 8.5 inches to nearly 3 feet in diameter. This change was made in response to concerns about the load-bearing strength of the lunar surface. There was quite a bit of concern that the lunar surface was like a sponge that could collapse upon landing. By making the foot pads more than three times larger than the initial design, the weight of the lunar lander would be spread out over a larger area, 
thus reducing the load on any one point. With such large foot pads, however, the space underneath the lunar lander was limited, especially as the landing gear were to start out in a retracted position. The limited space underneath the lander when these larger foot pads were retracted encouraged the elimination of one of the original five landing legs. So now there would only be four legs. Grumman also selected a kind of braced cantilever design for the legs for weight and simplicity. They also included shock absorbers inside the legs so that the foot pads could absorb a variety of impacts. For reasons of weight and simplicity, again, Grumman avoided the use of any springs or hydraulics for the shock absorbers. Instead, they padded the inside of the lunar landing gear legs with a honeycomb design, sort of like packing material in a delivery box. This would compress upon impact from the foot pads. The honeycomb material couldn't be used more than once because, like packing material, once crushed, it can't be uncrushed. But the Grumman engineers figured the descent stage was only ever going to land once, so that was fine. So that was the descent stage of the lunar excursion module. As for the ascent stage, there were quite a few major design decisions to be made here as well. One design decision to note immediately on the ascent stage, and really the whole lunar excursion module, but the ascent stage especially, was the rather ungainly appearance of the spacecraft. This was because the ascent stage in particular lacked anything that might appear to be a sleek aerodynamic surface. The lack of any aerodynamic look was intentional, as the spacecraft would only ever operate in space. Thus, as the engineers began mounting equipment onto the ascent stage, the only real concern was whether the equipment would fit and if that was a good location for the equipment. Some equipment was mounted on the inside, others on the outside. Whatever worked best functionally. The ungainly appearance was made worse by the need to install two sets of radar systems on the ascent stage. One system was to be used for landing on the lunar surface. The second was for docking with the Apollo command module. Placing the two radar systems in the right spot for the best rangefinding accuracy, and then properly insulating them to ensure the two systems did not interfere with one another, required some creative thinking in terms of placement. This resulted in random bulges and antennae sticking out of the ascent stage. The rough appearance was possible because the Lunar Excursion Module was the first manned spacecraft designed solely for operation in a vacuum. In fact, I believe that it remains the only manned spacecraft designed solely to operate in a vacuum. Setting aside space stations, the only other potential contender would be SpaceX's Starship Lunar Lander variant. But as of now, that spacecraft is designed to travel through the atmosphere 
once to get to space, though it apparently will have no re-entry capabilities. So the LEM may still be the only manned spacecraft designed solely to operate in space. One of the easier design decisions for the ascent stage was the rocket. In contrast to the complicated, throttleable rocket engine needed for the descent stage, the rocket for the ascent stage would be a simple, non-gimbaled rocket with pressure-fed hypergolic propellants. In other words, the rocket engine was fixed and the fuel would burn on its own. The engine was far simpler than the descent stage since this one just needed to bring the lunar excursion module back to the lunar orbit to redock with the Apollo command module. Grumman also designed the ascent stage rocket engine with an abort scenario in mind. If a problem arose while the lunar excursion module was attempting to land on the moon, the descent stage would simply be jettisoned. The rocket on the ascent stage would then bring the astronauts back to the command module. As always, there was that fear in the back of NASA and the contractors' minds that if something went wrong with the engines on the lunar lander during landing, the two astronauts aboard might not be able to come home. But they also wouldn't die. Instead, they'd die slowly in space around the moon after running out of life support. By making the ascent stage rocket simple, it would provide some comfort that the astronauts could be brought back to the command module if there had to be an abort and avoid this dreadful nightmare scenario. One of the more difficult design issues for the ascent stage was actually something that sounds like it should be quite simple. The windows. The windows were considered an especially important aspect of the ascent stage because they would be critical for the astronauts to pick out the final landing site and judge whether or not they should abort the mission. And as you'll hear when we get to Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong will take his darn sweet time looking out that window to pick the final landing site. The first idea at Grumman was to install a large semi-spherical glass dome, similar to the kind of windows installed on helicopters. This would afford the astronauts with the largest field of view and allow them to see down and forward. But this idea was quickly dropped because the glass would have to be strengthened and made very thick, which also created weight issues. In the end, the window would just be a flat triangle that leaned forward to allow the astronauts to look at the ground. This window would be just one-tenth the size of the originally proposed window. With this design, there were concerns about whether the astronauts had a sufficient field of view from their controls when trying to land on the moon. The concern over visibility was not resolved until someone came up with the genius idea to remove the seats in the ascent stage cabin. 
The seats were bulky and the astronauts would need room in the cabin anyways to enter and exit the spacecraft to get to the lunar surface. And they would also need room enough to don their spacesuits before getting out. The seats also weren't necessary since the landing process would be relatively brief and the g-forces would be moderate. The removal of the seats also eliminated the knee room between the astronaut and the controls. In other words, the astronaut would just be standing by the controls. As a result, his face would be much closer to the window, allowing him to see down at the lunar surface much more easily. In place of seats, Grumman implemented a harness system to prevent the astronauts from being jostled around too much during flight. The rest of the interior of the ascent stage took about two full years to fully design. One interesting design choice here was to make the controls in the lunar lander as nearly identical as possible to those on the command module. This would reduce the training needed to operate both parts of the spacecraft. Grumman was also required to design the controls so that hovering and touchdown on the lunar surface had to be done manually. This would also avoid an abort in the case of failure of one of the displays on the control panel. One of the biggest engineering problems in the ascent stage was the power supply. Originally, NASA wanted to use fuel cells in the lunar lander. But, as I mentioned in episode 24 in the context of the Gemini program, fuel cells were a new technology. In the context of the ascent stage of the lunar lander, Grumman encountered lots of technical problems integrating the fuel cells into the complex set of systems on the spacecraft. It could be done, but NASA and Grumman estimated that it would take over a year to get the fuel cells to integrate with other systems. By February 1965, the decision was made to replace the fuel cells with batteries. So that is where the design of the lunar excursion module stood after two years of development in 1963 and 1964. Now moving on to the other Apollo spacecraft, the command module. As I mentioned at the beginning, the design for the command module started first, way back in 1961. But after NASA finally selected Lunar Orbital Rendezvous as the mode to get to the moon by mid to late 1962, the command module design changed significantly. A lot of the work that North American Aviation had done on the command module no longer applied. In particular, plans to attach a propulsion stage for a lunar surface landing had to be thrown out altogether. Instead, what the command module needed now was the capability to dock with another spacecraft, the Lunar Excursion Module. This docking port would need to allow astronauts and supplies to be transferred between the two spacecraft. North American, however, had already put a lot of work into a version of the command module 
that had no docking capabilities. This initial design would be known as the Block 1 version of the Apollo Command Module. North American would now need to begin working on a version of the Command Module with docking capabilities, which would be known as the Block 2 version of the spacecraft. Although the Block 1 design was now basically made obsolete by design choices for getting to the moon, NASA still insisted that North American continue with the design and eventual manufacture of the Block 1 spacecraft. Although the Block 1 spacecraft could not be used for docking, it could be used for the early manned Apollo missions that would take place in Earth orbit. The Apollo program initially called for four manned Apollo missions in Earth orbit on a Saturn I rocket. As I mentioned in episode 25, however, George Miller will cancel these missions by late 1963, creating a surplus of Block 1 Apollo command modules with no particular mission, since it was now too late to cancel the contract for the spacecraft. Miller would also have one other important impact on the design of the Apollo Command Module. During the initial design stages, NASA believed that for long-duration missions, reliability of the spacecraft would be increased if tools and spare parts were stored on the spacecraft. The astronauts would be trained to repair and replace certain equipment that malfunctioned. Over time, NASA started to move away from this philosophy toward the installation of redundant systems. In this scenario, rather than training the astronauts to all serve as part engineer and replace parts as needed, they could simply shift from one spacecraft system to another. Once Miller took over as head of the Office of Manned Spaceflight, he pushed this philosophy through and North American was told to start implementing redundant systems in April 1964. By early 1964, there was another problem though. There had been, and were continuing to be, so many requests for design changes to North American that the development of the command module was becoming delayed. Some of these changes were major, like the need for a docking system, necessitated by the choice to go with LOR, and the late decision to go with redundant systems rather than having replacement parts. But there also seemed to be changes in the concept for the lunar mission that kept changing the command module design. This was because, basically, NASA didn't quite know what it was going to do once they got to the moon. So, in 1964, NASA began to prepare something known as the Design Reference Mission. The Design Reference Mission would lay out exactly what the objectives of the Lunar Landing Mission would be, and what the astronauts were expected to do once they got to the Moon. This process would help NASA and North American understand what was needed in the spacecraft design. The design reference mission decided on a few basic objectives. 
two astronauts would be landed on the moon with scientific equipment on the Earth-facing side of the moon. The spacecraft had to be capable of carrying 100 kilograms of scientific equipment to the moon and returning with about 30 kilograms of lunar rocks and soil samples. A study group then planned out every step of a hypothetical mission to meet these mission objectives. The planning went down to specific timings for launch and maneuvers to get to the moon. In fact, to make all of this step-by-step -step planning work, they actually had to pick a specific arbitrary date for the hypothetical mission. They randomly chose May 6, 1968. This specific date allowed the study group to have a specific position for the Earth and the Moon to plan for the maneuvers and rocket engine burn times. This entire process to plan the mission to the Moon and back took about four months and produced three gigantic tomes detailing every event and action needed to get to the moon and back. This exhaustive exercise provided NASA and the contractors with a clear understanding of what systems needed to be made and what everyone should be doing. With this study, the design for the Block 2 command module began to proceed much more smoothly. While all this was happening, the very first steps toward flight testing were taking place. On May 28, 1964, a mission known as SA-6 took place. This mission was to use a Saturn I rocket to launch a boilerplate model of the command module and service module into Earth orbit. This was the first time that any Apollo spacecraft would be launched by a Saturn rocket, and this unmanned test mission was a total success. The Apollo spacecraft flew 54 orbits before re-entering the atmosphere and crashing into the Pacific Ocean. The spacecraft was never recovered since it was just a boilerplate. A nearly identical test launch occurred on September 17, 1964, which was also successful. Apollo, however, was not the only program beginning flight testing in 1964. So was Gemini. More about that next time.